0: What's up, everybody? This is Ryan. I'm here with Mark. Say hello, Mark. What's up? And Nick. Say hello, Nick. What's up?
1: Hey, how you doing?
0: (laughs) Uh, Nick is actually not here with us, but uh, a lot of the premillennial theology comes from the book of Daniel. And we didn't want to just give you Dr. Mark Bailey giving a case for premillennialism without letting you hear the other side of the coin, which is typically amillennialism. Although postmillennialism is a view that a group of people hold, it's not, a, it's not quite as popular as premillennialism or amillennialism. We could possibly get to postmillennialism, maybe when we get to the book of Revelation. Um, but we wanted to give you the other popular view in regards to eschatology— since we gave you the premillennial episode with Dr. Mark Bailey. So that's the reason why we interviewed Dr. Sam Storms for this episode. He's kind of the voice for amillennialism. He wrote the book called The Amillennial Alternative. Um, and so he is kind of the voice on this. A little bit about Dr. Sam Storms. He has a master's of theology from, shockingly, Dallas Theological Seminary, oh. a.k.a. Dispensational Theological Seminary. Interesting. Yeah, so he, he came from the belly of the beast and became an amillennial scholar. Uh, so that is a very interesting fact. Also, he has his Ph.D. from the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns. Uh, he is also the lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He's the founder of Enjoying God Ministries. He's a council member of the Gospel Coalition, and he's authored numerous books, including Practicing the Power and the one I mentioned, Kingdom Come, the Amillennial Alternative. And so I hope that you guys enjoy the episode with Dr. Sam Storms. I know that we learned a lot about amillennialism, and I hope that you do too.
2: Bible Dingers.
1: All right, for those of you, for those of the people that are listening for the first time and have no idea about any of this topic, can you just give a brief explanation about amillennialism?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, The name itself is a little misleading because the alpha privative suggests that uh, people like myself don't believe in a millennium. And in fact, uh, I do. Uh, Revelation 20 speaks of a thousand year period. So obviously, we do affirm the notion of a millennial kingdom. What we are saying, however, is that it is not something subsequent to the second coming of Jesus and prior to the introduction of the new heavens and new earth that lasts for a literal 1,000 years. Um, I believe that the millennial kingdom of Revelation 20 is describing the entire span of what we call the present inter Advent age. That is the age in which we live the age of the church but spanning between the two comings of Jesus. And I think what is being described there is the uh, reign of the saints with Christ in what we call the intermediate state during the span of, as I said, this uh, this present age that we call the church age. So I think the millennium is very real. I think it involves uh, the rule and reign. I could even say the co-regency of God's people with Christ in heaven, even now. Uh, it began with his uh, exaltation to the right hand of the Father, and it will um, terminate with his second coming at the end of human history. So I do believe uh, very, very much in the teaching of Revelation 20. I just don't think that's descriptive of a literal 1,000-year period within history subsequent to the second coming. I think it's, happening, it's something that occurs now, uh, Antecedent to or prior to the second coming, just
0: to make sure we understand, so it seems as if the promises that God has made in the Old Testament and Daniel and in Revelation that a millennialist would say that's not pointing to a literal, physical thousand year kingdom on earth, that's that's pointing to something else.
2: No, uh, actually, I wouldn't say that. I do believe that uh, there will be a literal, physical, very earthly rule of Christ in fulfillment of the old covenant promises. It's just that it will be on the new earth, not this present earth, but the new heavens and the new earth that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So the only thing that I'm uh, questioning and that I don't believe will happen is that uh, those promises will be fulfilled in some sort of 1,000-year uh, um, period between the second coming and the inauguration of the eternal state. I believe very much in a what I'm, I'm, I'm what you might call an earthy amillennialist. I believe that uh, those earthly promises will be fulfilled, but it'll be in the new earth, uh, not in this present earth.
1: <clears throat> so the promises of a literal earthly kingdom. Um, as in Zechariah or Jeremiah. We see that in Daniel, where it says the kingdom is described as being under heaven. We also have something in Acts, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, that the prophets foretold of dramatic earthly changes during the kingdom. That's all describing his, his second coming to a new earth? Is that what those passages are talking
2: about? Well, part of the problem here is that we haven't defined the word literal. Because my suspicion is that you may be using that word in a diff- with a different definition, different implications from how I am using it. What I mean uh, is that uh, the promises of God's rule over and among His people, <clears throat> excuse me, on an earthly, uh, on an earthly terrain, as it were, um, will in fact come to pass, and that it will come to pass subsequent to the second coming of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So I don't know if, you know, to what extent we might say certain um, prophecies are literally fulfilled. As I said, depends on what you mean by literal. Uh, do you mean a photographic reproduction in the fulfillment of what was stated in the prophecy? I don't, I don't think that that is necessarily always the case. Uh, the word fulfillment, um, you know, has a, has a variety of different meanings that exist on a spectrum Um, You know, one you know we just came out of the Christmas season, and one can uh, see examples of this. For example, in Matthew two, where Matthew says that the um, the journey of Jesus with his family into Egypt is in some sense a fulfillment of a prophecy from Hosea that describes the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Well, there's no photographic reproduction there. Uh, It's not precisely. Fulfilled in the way that it was prophesied, but it is fulfilled. It's just uh, there are different senses in which the word fulfillment is used. Um, many of the, you know, many of the laws, many of the uh, Levitical sacrifices, the types and prophecies of the old find uh, correspondence in certain events in the New Covenant age, and in that sense they are fulfilled. So a lot of it obviously depends on how we're we're u- utilizing our language here.
0: I guess I just want to clear it up from my understanding. Whenever there's scriptures like in Zechariah fourteen four, when it talks about Jesus physically coming and, and placing his foot on the Mount of Olives, um, you're saying that is going to physically happen. However, it's not going to set up a physical earthly kingdom here on this earth. It's going to set up a, a physical earthly kingdom on the new earth.
2: Well, first of all, um, the question of the you know that language of um, him putting his foot upon the Mount of Olives and it's splitting in two—is that or is that not physically going to come to pass? Um, I'm certainly open to the possibility that it might. Uh, I think that if it does, that's what occurs at the time of the second coming of Christ, and it inaugurates what we find in Revelation 21 and 22, namely the coming to earth of heaven, the renovation. And uh, the restoration of all things, the elimination of evil, the lifting of the curse off of the creation, and so on. Uh, at the same time, I have to ask the question um, how does the Old Testament in particular speak of mountains? What, what do they, is he talking about literal mountains like Pikes Peak or the, the Himalayas or the Alps? Uh, And what we find is that in most cases, mountains in the Old Testament are a reference to earthly kingdoms. Um, And so it may well be that what is being said there, like it does in many other texts, is that uh, God, as it were, treads on the high places. Uh, He comes upon the mountains and they melt like wax. Uh, Thinking, for example, of a passage like um, uh, Micah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And I've I've, I've just opened up And I'll read it. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Um, Well, I don't know of anybody, of any uh, millennial view, that believes that the mountains are going to literally melt or that all the valleys are going to split open like wax before fire. Um, These are highly figurative and hyperbolic descriptions of God's uh, sovereign sway over and His subduing of the earthly kingdoms of man at His second coming. So it may be that um, Zechariah 14 is describing about is describing something that will literally or physically happen at the second coming. I have no problem with that. I'm more inclined to think that it's along the lines of what I read in a passage like Micah. It's the same kind of language is found in Nahum chapter one. Um, but I do believe that when Christ returns at the consummation of this present age, he will inaugurate um, the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. And it's in that context that the promises uh, will be fulfilled.
0: So I think that a dispensational premillennialist would say that you have to take Prophecies literally, unless it's clearly hyperbolic language, language which you mentioned about uh, mountain mountains melting like wax, so on and so forth. So, what would you say to somebody that says you're not taking the Bible literally enough that you're maybe over spiritualizing it even?
2: Well, I I don't my, the question of whether I'm taking something literal or spiritual is not the issue. The issue is how do the New Testament authors interpret those Old Testament prophecies, and how do they understand the way in which they're going to be fulfilled? Um, If, in fact, uh, for example, I'll just give you one quick illustration. Um, You know, you read in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, uh, where Paul is describing God's saving work among the Gentiles. And uh, in that context, he says, and I'm reading it here, says even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, her who was not beloved, I will call beloved in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So here we have a passage then in in its Old Testament context is describing God's work among the people Israel. But Paul here applies it to God's saving work among the Gentiles. So is Paul spiritualizing that passage? Well, I don't think so because we have to ask the question, what was the ultimate intent of God in uh, revealing this text and in what way does God intend for it to be fulfilled? So again, we have to define the word literal here. If you mean physically uh, tangible, do you mean uh, uh, that a fulfillment has to be a photographic reproduction of the prophecy, then I would say that's not how the New Testament handles the old, and it's how the New Testament handles the old that governs my understanding of what will or will not come to pass in the future. You know, again, I I would ask my dispensational friends, in what sense was um, Matthew 2 a fulfillment of Hosea? In what sense was it literal um, when in fact the, the Old Testament's talking about God's work among a nation of people, and in Matthew 2 he's talking about uh, his incarnate son, and in Ma- Hosea 11 he's talking about a deliverance out of Egypt, and in Matthew 2 he's talking about um, a journey um, into Egypt. There's no one-to-one correspondence there. We, it's it's type and anti-type. It's a uh, Sometimes fulfillment comes by way of analogy. Sometimes, sometimes there is a photographic reproduction. We just have to examine each prophecy and each fulfillment on its own terms.
0: I was going to ask, since so basically, we're we're doing this conversation about amillennialism because we're going through the Bible, uh, one book at a time, and this is going to come right after our Daniel episode. And a lot of dispensationalists believe that Daniel really talks a lot about the um, future millennium and stuff like that. And the 77 seven sevens and all that stuff. So I wanted to ask you if you have kind of a rule for yourself, uh, when it comes to reading prophecies in the Bible, whether it be old Testament or new Testament, how do we know when to read a prophecy a certain way as a type or literally, or whatever it may be? Do you have a certain rule that you would apply to that?
2: Uh, not really. I think you have to take each one on its own terms. For example, uh, let me let me just use a quick example. Uh, John chapter seven. Um, it's it's Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, as you know about the Feast of Tabernacles, where the priest would um, you know re- take a pitcher, dip it into the pool of Siloam, they would return to the temple in this great festive parade. He would pour the water. Onto the altar, the people would all shout in giving gratitude for uh, God's provision of water to Israel during their wilderness wanderings. Well, it's in that context that Jesus stands up and says, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, for out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water." And then also the 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 um, the, the ritual associated with uh, the tabernacles, where they would light these um, these multiple these multiple lamps that would shed light throughout the city of Jerusalem as a way of remembering the pillar of fire that guided Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus stands up at that very moment and says, I am the light of the world. So Hmm. I would say, what is going on there? Well, to me, it's clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the water that was provided in uh, the wilderness. He is the pillar of light that guides God's people through Uh, their wanderings. So, uh, in the same way where, I'll just give another example. Um, What about the Sabbath? Well, I think very clearly Jesus is himself our Sabbath. He is the one in whom we rest uh, in every sense of the term. Uh, Jesus is himself the fulfillment of the temple. I mean, he said that multiple occasions in the Gospels, and Paul reaffirms it in his letters as well. Um, So, people ask the question, uh, well this this prophecy of uh, of a rebuilt temple or things that uh, the, the events that will be associated with a, a temple in the end times? Well, I think the temple is Jesus and by extension, it's his body, the church. Um, I don't think God will ever again sanction the rebuilding of a physical structure in Jerusalem. I think we are the only temple in which he is pleased to dwell by his spirit. So again, I don't know that I could articulate a single rule that is one size fits all. I think we have to look at each individual case and ask the question, um, In what what is it that uh, the New Testament is saying about the manner in which God intends to fulfill or bring to pass what he intended through the Old Testament prophet? So again, I realize that's probably not a satisfying answer because you're looking for a kind of a singular principle that governs all instances. And I don't, I really don't think that, um, that we, that we find that. I mean, you know, like, there's so many examples we could use. There's uh, uh, David is clearly a type of Jesus in his life. Joseph was very clearly a type of Jesus. Uh, Moses was very clearly a type of Jesus. We see this, especially in Matthew's gospel. Um, so there are multiple instances in which we see typology which doesn't necessarily have what we would call a fulfillment. It's rather we have a reproduction in the New Testament in an escalated and intensified way of a principle that we find initially in the Old Testament. So again, it's just, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to your question. It's on a case-by-case basis. Um, That's the only way I know how to, uh, you know, if I were going to say one principle, I would simply say, The issue for me is how does the New Testament interpret the Old? I think it's a mistake, hermeneutically speaking, to read an Old Testament text and then conclude um, from that Old Testament passage the definitive and ultimate meaning of it in the eschaton. You have to look at that Old Testament in light of the New. We have to see everything through the lens of the person and work of Jesus and what he accomplished in establishing the New Covenant. So I was going
0: to hit on one more question for you, and I appreciate that answer. Um, And this might be a little bit vague, but I'm going to go for it. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8, I think a lot of people believe that this is pertaining to the end times. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and I'm going to ask you a quick question afterwards. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, they shall dwell in their own land. So I think a lot of people interpret that. Well, not a lot of people. I would say dispensational people would interpret that as um, pertaining to the end times and the, and the millennium here on earth. Now, these verses are talking about judgment and the Lord bringing judgment upon people. So my question is, and this may be a strange question, it might be totally, I'm, I'm clearly out of my depth here, but I was going to ask you, um, if the, if the millennium and if the kingdom are set up on the new heavens and new earth, then why would the Messiah still be executing judgment if we're in the new heavens and new earth?
2: Well, that's a good question. First of all, I do believe that this is a reference to the coming of Christ. I think when he said, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he'll reign as king and deal wisely. shall will execute justice and righteousness in the land. I think he's doing that right now. Hmm. I think from the moment that Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has been executing judgment and justice and righteousness, not just in the land as it was understood in the Old Testament, but the whole earth. So I think that this is something that was inaugurated uh, and is ongoing uh, throughout the present course of, of the age in which we live. Um, so, you know, again, the um, talks about they shall dwell in their own land. We have to ask the question, in, to what w- was the reference to the land in the uh, Old Testament promises referring uh, was it talking about that, that very narrow slice of, of, um, uh, of earth that we call Israel right now? Well, it certainly includes that. But when you read Hebrews 11, you discover that Abraham himself didn't view the land into which God had, had um, taken him as the fulfillment of that promise. It says that he, in fact, was looking for a city that has foundations. He said, He basically said, I regard myself as a stranger in exile on this earth. Why? He tells us, verse 16, because he desires a better country that is a heavenly one. So um, I think the fulfillment of the promise of God's people dwelling in their own land is, again, ultimately fulfilled in the new earth. Um, I think that the uh, execution of justice and righteousness, that is what Jesus is doing right now in his role as Lord and governor over the nations of the earth. Um, and I think obviously it will be consummated at the time of his second coming. Um, so.
0: Got it. Okay. So you would say that that's not necessarily pointing to the end times. This is more so pointing to the coming of Christ and it's now being fulfilled.
2: I think it's both. I think it's both now and the end time. It's both inaugurated and also will be consummated at the time of the second coming of Jesus. So I think the, uh, the execution of justice and righteousness is something that is happening, that that, that that Jesus is doing right now as he rules from the right hand of the Father, and it's something that will be consummated at the time of his second coming when he will execute final judgment and justice. And then I might also say one other thing. for the uh, For the premillennialist who wants to say that this is an execution of justice during this 1,000 years following the second coming, there's a real problem with that, given the fact that in the New Testament, whenever you read about the second coming, there are several things that happen at the time of the second coming, namely the um, uh, the earth is delivered from the curse, we find that in Romans 8 um, the final resurrection takes place, we see that in John 5 and for, uh, 2 Thessalonians, or excuse me, um, Think of Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and elsewhere. Um, the death, uh, the, uh, physical death comes to an end, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, the final judgment transpires of all people, Matthew uh, 26 and Second uh, Thessalonians 1. Um, so all of these things, as I read the New Testament, happen simultaneously with the second coming of Jesus, which would make impossible... The perpetuation beyond his second coming of unbelievers alive on the earth, uh, judgment still occurring, physical death still occurring, the curse still existing on the earth. These things, as I read the New Testament, all terminate with the second coming of Jesus at the end of this present age. Uh,
1: the next question is a really hot topic, especially for me. When you interact with a lot of dispensationalism, they a lot of dispensationalists, they believe that God has a special plan for Israel. And we can see that hinted a little bit in in the Bible. and I just wanted to hear what you would believe about Israel. Um, are the promises to Israel that we read in Scripture literal?
2: Well, there we go again, using that word. Um, I think that the prom- the promises made to, to the elect ethnic Israelites in the Old Covenant or elect ethnic Israelites in any age will be fulfilled in accordance with the way the New Testament articulates. So if, if you want to call that literal, that's great. If you want to call it some other word, that's fine as well. But the question, uh, really, we have to go deeper with that. We have to define what we mean by Israel. Certainly, in the Old Testament, Israel was viewed as um, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, That—that's unmistakable. No, no, I don't think anybody denies that. So then, we have to ask the question: When we come to the New Testament, is the definition of Israel expanded? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. Uh, so, for example, when I read in Galatians chapter three. Um, where uh, Paul is talking about this very issue. And he says, um, he says, for example, in verse 16, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, when you go back in the Old Testament, you go back to Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, and you read those uh, those statements, the offspring, the seed there, is very clearly a reference to the physical progeny of Abraham. But then Paul goes on to say, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The point being that the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham is found and rooted in and located in the person of Jesus, only one of Abraham's physical offspring. Hmm. But just when you think that, oh my goodness, it sounds like he's he's narrowed down the fulfillment of that promise to only one person— He immediately throws open um, the gates, as it were, where he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he has the very statement, very important statement. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, if you're all one in Christ. And then the statement in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, that is, if you are in Jesus, if you're trusting him, the true seed of Abraham, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So I do believe that all the promises made to the elect among ethnic Israelites, will they will inherit. They will receive the fullness of that in whatever way we determine from Scripture that's to be fulfilled. But there will also be believing Gentiles who equally inherit those promises because they've been grafted into the olive tree. You know, Paul talks in... Uh, Ephesians um, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 about how Gentiles have now been made one new man together with Israel. We become members of the Commonwealth of Israel. We are uh, heirs according to the promise. Um, so Israel, as it is, I think, expanded in the New Testament, doesn't exclude any believing Jew. Nobody's replaced. Nobody is excluded. Nobody is uh, forfeits their inheritance. It's just now that they're, the, the olive tree of God's people includes believing Gentiles together with believing Jews who together inherit the promises. So how those promises will ultimately be fulfilled in the new earth, um, we just have to go into Revelation 21, 22 and elsewhere to discover. But you're asking what I believe about Israel. I believe Israel um, is a word that encompasses all the elect of every ethnicity and not simply those who are descended physically from Abraham. Sorry, you got me preaching a sermon there. I didn't mean to (laughs) do that. (laughs) No,
1: I I love it. I I love your teaching. I respect it highly. Um, If any of our listeners want to get more of your teaching, where can they find you? Do you have a website or anything?
2: I sure do. Samstorms.org. 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 And uh, I've got numerous articles there on eschatology. I just click on resources and articles, and you'll see numerous studies on, on eschatology, on Revelation, on Daniel. Perhaps the best thing, though, is my book, Kingdom Come, where I uh, go into much more detail on virtually all of these issues. Awesome. And by the way, one more thing. Um, I, I preached through Revelation in about 40 sermons last year. I uh, also preach through the Olivet Discourse in uh, Mark 13, and uh, those sermons are available at our church website, bridgewaychurch.com, bridgewaychurch.com, and they can, uh, they can download the notes. They, I give all manuscript, all my sermon notes. They can watch it in video. They can listen to it in audio. So that those are the main places where they can see most of this material.
0: That's awesome. <coughs> well... I just wanted to thank you for being on the show with us. I know that uh, I think you went you went to Dallas Theological, correct?
2: I did indeed. Doesn't sell like it does it? Yes. Yeah, so you are <laughs> yeah, right. guilty
0: of the dispensationalism. I I am also a dispensationalist by association. I like to say. Um, so I I appreciate everything that you that you've taught us today. You gave us a lot to think about. I think we're going to have to listen and then probably re-listen and then <laughs> right. maybe listen a third time. Uh, just to make sure we got it all. But I appreciate everything that you taught us today.
2: Yeah, it's it's been well, great. It's my pleasure. Let me just remind us all once again, I mean this sincerely. Uh, what I hope we would all focus on is what we hold in common, mm. and that is that we are all looking with anxious expectation for the literal, physical, personal, visible return of Jesus at the end of this age um, to redeem us and deliver us and bring us into His eternal kingdom. That's where that's where Christians unite. Um, and uh, I just hope that we can celebrate that unity rather than to allow our differences on some of the associated events divide us. I, I think it's important we focus on what unites us.
0: Yeah. I agree. We had we actually had uh, Dr. Mark Bailey on the show about six months ago, the president of Dallas Theological, and we're yes. actually, he's going to be your counterpart. Uh, he's going to do an episode with us about premillennialism, um, And he said the same exact thing, that you know what, it's not these small issues that they're important to know, but what's really important is that we're all united in Christ, and I appreciate you saying that as well. Yeah, same here. <clears throat> so thank you, Dr. Storms. We appreciate everything and we hope you'll be on again sometime.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me anytime. I'd be happy to do it.
0: All right. Talk to you later.